from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 41, recorded April the 3rd, 2023. I'm your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell. And with me, as always, is Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy here and at Parrot Analytics. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's baseball season. That helps a lot with my mental health yeah. to have it be baseball season again. I'm one of those people, you know, feels good. It- same here. I, I literally the other night was going to I had a late night affair. So I was like, if I don't get a nap in, I won't make it because I'm an old person. And I uh, fell asleep to I think it was the Yankees. And I was like, this is great. Yeah, this is perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Um, So we got a lot going on. This uh, th- we're doing just a little peek behind the curtain. Julia is about to go away on, for a while. For a while on vacation. So our next episode will actually be a, uh, a kind of an episode out of time. And then I'll have a guest after that. But this episode is timely. And uh, and so we should start with some follow-up. And I'm going to follow up via a uh, a letter we got from Yitz, who wrote, I'm mostly oblivious to the news, but I noticed a lot of the Marvel Disney Plus shows are seeing delays. Originally, the Marvel shows were something fresh because they were bringing production values and actors from their movies to streaming TV. Is the slowdown that's taking place more a realization that those kinds of budgets need to be spread over a much lo- longer timeline in order to try and make them profitable? And I, I was struck by this. There's a new trailer for the Secret Invasion show, which is coming out in June, which is Samuel L. Jackson uh, that dropped yesterday. But I wanted to talk to you about this. Um, we've talked about Marvel and we've talked about the slowdown in general in streaming. Um, I feel like Yitz is pretty much answering their own question here, which is, it seems to me that the solution that Marvel has gotten to spending too much money on streaming shows is to just release them less often. And so the existing stuff that's in the pipeline has all just sort of been spaced out a bit. Does that seem about right to you that that's, that seems to be what's going on is just, Oh, I know we ordered five shows, but we're going to, we're going to roll them out over a longer period of time than, than maybe we would have done two years ago. Yeah. I, I, it all comes down to budget. And also what I think you're seeing a lot of is two things or three things happen at once, which is there are inherent budgetary concerns right across the industry as a whole, but especially at Disney where they're trying to cut $3 billion um, in kind of savings in order to, aggressively pay down some debt and as they look to kind of do some more innovation they really don't want to be in a position that a company like warner brothers discovery is which is they are just focused uh, heightenedly focused on paying back kind of um principal debt so there's there's that uh, a consideration but that really exists alongside two other realizations which is one they can heavily reduce the amount of dev of marvel disney plus series available and it's not actually going to lead to a massive increase in churn or a decrease in customer acquisition right so if we assume that with each new marvel show the level of acquisition across customers kind of decreases over time because you bring more of them on if they're not churning there you really have less to build out to you can really just space out those series and still see the same level of acquisition and churn, um, you know, from an engagement standpoint, we're on the advertising tier, this gets a little bit more complicated. But if we think about it just from an SBOT perspective, and then we add in the fact, you know, literally, as Jason and I are recording this, you know, a, about an hour ago, Bob Iger addressed a lot of the shareholders during Disney's virtual um, shareholder, shareholder day. And uh, he said, you know, like, 
the issue of uh, quality is that it is not hand in hand to quantity, right? And so there is a refocus on kind of the quality aspect for Marvel Studios, which if you're Disney, you're really concerned about the longevity of that brand. You're not necessarily concerned about the quick buck on it. I mean, obviously, you'd want both. So I think yes, you're you're spot on. I think it's a combination of the budget, but comes down from the fact that they can say we can actually heavily reduce and it's not going to impact the business. In fact, it might in the long run, actually increase the level of customer sentiment. Um, and this really plays into our need to cut down and reserve uh, finances. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's exactly the New Yorker problem, but it is that kind of thing that I, I, I think there's a unintuitive, counterintuitive fact that when you have too much of something, all of it is not too much of something. You have a lot of something. It, it's less special. Let, let me put it that way. And that I think that maybe part of what was, what was going on too, is that there were so many Marvel movies and so many Marvel TV shows that it actually, even though it was like, give the people what they want. It also had, I believe a little bit of a deleterious effect because people are like, Oh yeah, it's more, more of that. And it's like more of, I don't know, more of the thing that you love should be great, but there is something to be said for, uh, for rationing it out and, and yeah. Right. So, so when Disney was like, Oh my God, we got to get, we got to launch Disney plus and how are we going to do it? They spent, 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 but I, but you know, now looking back, it's sort of like maybe the not leaving aside the, the budget cuts, like maybe the cadence was a little too aggressive for Marvel. Maybe we don't need Marvel in everyone's face every week of the year. Right. Like maybe that was too much, not special. Absolutely. I mean, and the, the the best part about this being a conversation within Marvel Studios is that you can actually look at a moment within Marvel Comics as an example of what not to do, right? Which was that period in the late 80s leading up to 1994, 1996, when Marvel Comics declared bankruptcy, right? It was the issue was that there was this huge mania within comics. And so they started flooding the market with all of these like fifth tier characters and and interweaving storylines that never made sense. But the idea was just to sell more comics. And eventually the quality really diminished. And not only that, but it became more expensive, which if we're thinking about this from Marvel Studios perspective, not only are you paying for the monthly service, but now you have to go see more movies in theaters, whatever it might be. Um, And so if you kind of do those one-to-one comparisons, you look at what happened to Marvel Comics and people just kind of walked away from it, right? Like something else always ends up coming up. The trends are cyclical. And so the consumer moved away and in the, event of Marvel Comics where that was, you know, the kind of the sole business. This was, they had some TV and film deals, but really it was, it was a comics industry and they were spending uh, everything on comics and the profit kind of just declined uh, consistently every single quarter, every single year until they eventually declared bankruptcy. You can kind of apply those learnings to Marvel Studios, right? And you're kind of saying, you can see audiences say, we're not really interested in this like we're not trying to keep up with this and we'll go watch something else we'll go watch john wick or we'll tune into uh something on on hbo max or something on hulu or something on netflix like we don't necessarily need this and if you're marvel again the and you're disney the bigger concern as someone who has integrated a lot of this into their theme parks into their merch lines into their their licensing business is we want to make sure that that sentiment among consumers remains as high as possible for as long as possible and so if slowing down on the release of the shows actually doesn't see much of an impact in terms of short-term revenue um, and in terms of building out your streaming empire and actually increases the sentiment. It's kind of the obvious thing to do. Yeah. And anticipation is good. I, I think that mm-hmm. like I, I it's it's a microcosm of what we've been discussing here for the last couple of years, now, right? Which is which is there was a time 
when you want to load everything in, just shovel everything in because you're like, we're launching this service. We need to give people value. People need to see it. But you do get to the point where, yeah, anticipation is good. I don't need something every week. In fact, I don't want something every week, but I do want a very special, like having Marvel movies and then having some very special Marvel series that are telling stories in a little bit of a different way. Great, right? Like, great, but not every week, please. It, it Then it's not special anymore anywhere. And then it starts to feel like for an interconnected universe, it starts to feel like work or homework. Exactly. And that's also bad. And we're, we're, there's a little out of our purview because it's not streaming yet. It's just in, in theatrical, but like the results of Ant-Man uh, it, it, domestically and internationally are not super strong. It's still that the, the third Ant-Man movie, it's pretty good compared to the competition, but compared to other Marvel movies, it's, it shows some weakness and the, the reason I bring it up is they're hanging like a whole character and a whole story arc off of what goes on in that movie. And the danger of having all this interconnectedness is you end up with like uh, homework that people don't want to do. And then other movies that people might be more inclined to watch, but feel like they can't because they haven't done the homework and the TV shows add an extra aspect of homework where it's like, well, wait a second. Do I, are people going to not want to go into the Marvels because they're not, they will not have seen the Ms. Marvel series on Disney plus it's a risk, right? Of just like, Oh, I shouldn't, right. even if, even if, and I see this a, a lot. Um, my wife and I were actually talking about this, uh, about, uh, about the Dungeons and Dragons movie, which we saw over the weekend and we thought was fun. It was a really fun movie. Um, nice change of pace, not a superhero movie, a Dungeons and Dragons movie. And my wife said, I'm never going to recommend that movie to my parents. And I said, why? It's fun. She says, it's, it is fun, but they're going to spend the whole time thinking, am I missing references? Should I have, pl- I don't play Dungeons and Dragons. And they're going to get so caught up in what they're missing that they're not, even though it's not necessary, that they're not going to enjoy it. And I think, I think that's a Marvel and more generally an extended universe problem is you, you may, you risk turning people off because there's now so much re- reading that's not required, but people think it's required. And, oh, yeah. And, right? My friends and, that, and I saw that at right? John Wick, people waiting till kind of the end for a post credit. And there was like a 30 second scene, but there was this moment of everyone kind of being like, oh, is that it? Like, or is there a second post credit or what happens? And yeah, I think like the way that Marvel has changed audience perception, yeah. audience expectation, and therefore audience approach to film, I think, is um, without doubt something that is going to have um, kind of uh, negative effects. Yeah, like something like Avengers Endgame, right? It's like, okay, this is the culmination of a whole thing. And like, okay, okay. But in general, what you want is that open door of like, look, it's a big blockbuster movie. Uh, you're going to be able to walk in and know who everybody is right away. And it's not going to be a problem. That's what you want it to be. And the danger is, and, and you bringing up Marvel going into bankruptcy in the 90s is a great example of this, is the danger is it becomes so self-referential or perceived as being so self-referential that people are turned away because they're like, well, no, 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 I'm not part of the, I'm not, I don't take Marvel movies seriously enough and therefore I am not qualified on a Friday night to go out and see this movie that everybody's talking about. And that is bad if you get to that point. You need, you need to people to, for people to feel like um, they can roll into a Marvel movie having only seen half of them and it'll be fine. And like, that is the, that is how the, the connected universe strategy cuts the other direction is if you, if you don't make it seem, if you're enriching the story, it's one thing, but if you're making people feel like they don't belong, you're going to be in trouble. Exactly. 
Um, well, we'll see what happens next with that. The Marvel movies continue, but yeah, the TV shows, that seems to be the answer is they're just spacing them out. I'm seeing that on Star Trek too. That, that's a, another, uh, franchise. That's a franchise I care about a lot. And they've just extended the, like at one point, I think they were planning on running 30 straight weeks of their live action series. And, and they're not going to do that. They, they're running one now Picard for 10 weeks and they're taking, I think it's five weeks off, six weeks off. And then they're running strange new worlds. And then they're not bringing back the, their other live action series discovery for its last season until 2024, even though they shot it last year. And that is a, I think, very specific strategy to space everything out. And that's how you save money. That's how you cut budgets without cutting the budgets of your shows is you just make fewer shows and show them less often. And yeah. that's going, it's going around. So Star Wars, I, you know, I think is doing the exact same thing too. Yeah. It's okay. Um, okay. I want to talk about theatrical releases, but a different kind of theatrical release. This is uh, keying off an article by Thomas Buckley and Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg, um, about Apple and Amazon is doing this too, but like Apple is, is, is what is the, at the center of this story. And it's the idea of, uh, again, talking about how the world has changed since we started doing this podcast. Their report is Apple spend, plans to spend a billion dollars a year to produce movies that will be released in theaters and then go on Apple TV plus afterward. And I heard we got a, we got a, uh, an email in or a, a feedback from Matt who said on my other podcast, Upgrade, we discussed the news, this this particular news, and they mentioned that Apple is shopping around for a preferred distributor. Um, and Matt's question was, would Apple acquire a distributor like Paramount, or are they just going to partner? But this is, boy, we have really come a long way, right? This is, the, this is streamers saying, oh, no, let's, not Netflix, but everybody else saying, oh, no, theatrical. Like, let's do theatrical. You pointed out, I think, in our last episode, like, why would you turn down that money? Like, let's get that money, too. And then let's put it on streaming and make more money there. Uh, but this is fascinating to see that Apple is, they've been doing some one-offs. It's like they've made their deal with Martin Scorsese for his movie. They, they You know, they guaranteed him a theatrical release. And that's right. like making a deal with him in order to do it. But this is different. This story from Bloomberg is, this is going to be Apple's strategy going forward, is they're going to, they're going to buy movies and put them in theaters first. And that's their new film strategy. Yeah. So there, there's a couple of asterisks that come with this story. Because I think to Jason's point, I, I think it's maybe the best encompassing of how far the industry has kind of come and, and how much of a 180 it's done since we started this podcast. Um, and I think with Apple, there's there's a few big asterisks, right? One, when they acquired the Scorsese movie, they already had the deal with Paramount to have Paramount distribute it. Yeah. Um, and so they were kind of like, this works out well for us. Two, to, to your question, Matt, about whether they would acquire a Paramount, that would be dependent on uh, Sherry Redstone, who's the controlling controller of of paramount yes. global uh saying that i will sell paramount pictures for, for by itself right which is kind of the deal that netflix was interested in like last year they were interested in paramount pictures the issue is that if you talk to anyone who kind of knows sherry in that room sherry does not want to sell paramount for part for parts if she wants someone to buy paramount global you're gonna have a really hard time selling um paramount plus in more importantly you're gonna have a really hard time selling cbs yeah. to, which is the more valuable portion of this to some of these key players so while Apple or Netflix or even an Amazon might be interested in Paramount for two reasons, one or for three reasons, great IP, uh, that's one, two, um, distribution pathway, as in they have people who can do that so they don't have to invest in their own team for that, two, three, uh, lot, 
they have lots that they can shoot on and then they can also license those lots out. Um, so kind of it's an additional revenue maker. Will Apple buy a distributor? I mean, never say never in this industry. You know, two years ago, Apple said they weren't going to be in theaters, really. And now they're going to be in theaters. Um, two years ago, Netflix said they weren't going to do ads. Now they're doing ads. Never say never. I don't think it's as likely for Apple to do it. Um, and I also don't think that they are necessarily interested in being a theatrical business. The other component of this story, right, is so when this happened, um, a lot of questions that I got from people were like, okay, well, how long till Netflix does it, right? Like if Apple and Amazon are doing it. And it's kind of like, well, first of all, there needs to be some form of success with with this. Apple and Amazon need to like actually make money uh, on this for, for Netflix to even consider it. But two... Apple, the reason Apple has to do this, uh, to Jason's point, like the, the people that they're partnering with are people who are coming to Apple because they are committing to the theatrical bit. They're saying like, okay, we want Martin Scorsese, we want um, whoever it might be, uh, uh, Ridley Scott, we want Noah Baumbach, they want to be in theaters. And so they're going, sure, we'll do that. And we're going to partner with a Paramount or a Sony, and they're going to get carry that. And then we're going to, we'll bring it back to our platform. But two... Apple has, I think estimates say like around 30 million subscribers globally. Apple can not do what Netflix can do, which is Netflix can make something a hit. Right. Netflix and we'll get to that say, in a minute. That's our next topic. But yes, Netflix can, do, can flip a switch. Apple can't can't flip that switch. Exactly. And so, Amazon exactly. And so, well, we'll keep the Netflix part for the next bit. You know, why would Apple want to do this? It is like, well, they need to market their streaming platform. They're not bringing people to the streaming platform by itself. The movies aren't likely to, sh- to change that needle that much. And so they're going, okay, but we have proof or we have this in third party proof that being in theaters actually does help bring people to streaming services. So this is a big marketing ploy for us. Again, you see this with the hiring of Ricky Strauss, who's their new head of marketing for Apple TV Plus, And he was a the head of marketing for Disney Plus uh, a few years ago when it launched. And so you kind of look at what they're doing. All of this is a major marketing push, which Netflix would argue is with exactly what they did with Knives Out for that same reason. Um, mm. But the reason for Apple to kind of do it is like, well, we can partner with someone like a Paramount and then we can kind of split the cost and, the, and we can, like, let's say Paramount takes on the marketing, right? Apple doesn't want to do it. Paramount says, we'll market it, no worries, because this is our main component of the business, right? Like, of course, which would be a whole other conversation because we all know how Apple feels about marketing. Uh, like, like, there's all these different steps that Apple can take to then see if this works. Again, like, if we if we just break down... The revenue, I know we just in the last podcast, but just as a reminder, the way the revenue works with films, it is like you go to theaters, 50% minimum, typically around 60 to 65% of that revenue goes to the exhibitor. So it goes to like the AMC or the Regal. And you're in theaters for 45 days, so you're giving half that away. Um, then you, if it does really well in theaters, which is great, you then have to increase what you're paying out to talent because you have the back end deals. And so you're paying that out where you make the vast majority of your revenue as someone who is like a Sony or Paramount is on the windowing. So when you bring it to iTunes or Amazon and then you bring it to, let's say, Paramount Plus or let's say you bring it to 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 Netflix. Right. And then you bring it to like FX. Those are pay one and pay two windows. It actually goes to the PVOD window, pay one window, P2 window, uh, pay two window in those windows. The way the math works is basically this. It's like. You have a pre-agreed upon uh, number of films, and they say if X film makes XX, then you will pay us this amount of money. If X film makes XXX, 
you will pay us this amount of money. So the mm. better a film does in theaters, the, the better that they're, that, that, exactly, the better that Sony or, or whoever is going to be paid. And that's just going to be a direct payment to them. There's no paying out to exhibitors. It's just directly to them. So they make all their money on pay one, pay two for the most part. You know, some, some in theaters, of course, you have a, a Spider-Man No Way Home. That movie makes a ton of money in theaters. Then you make even more on kind of the pay one, pay two. If Apple, doesn't actually do that. If Apple's whole thing is, okay, we want this to go to theaters and then we're just going to bring it to Apple TV Plus because we see it as a marketing ploy, the amount of revenue that Apple can therefore generate is not as much. But the other end of that question is, is it still going to be more money than Apple would have made if they had just dropped it on the platform that nobody is subscribing to? And so I imagine that the very, 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 very smart people that Apple hires did the modeling uh, uh, exercise on this and determined, actually, because we are a pretty small platform still, if we're in theaters and it drives even this percentage of revenue, or sorry, meaningful uh, subscriber acquisition and retains this many amount of subscribers, and we actually make this amount in theaters, even with what we have to pay, it's more lucrative for us to do this experiment than just drop it on our streaming service, which is what I suspect happened. I am also a strong believer in the idea, and I know we've talked about this here, Mm -hmm. of the the virtuous marketing cycle of film, which is the example I like to give is an Apple TV Plus movie. And I've been an Apple TV Plus subscriber since the beginning, and I write about Apple for my job. An Apple TV Plus movie got a Best Supporting Actor nomination in the Oscars this year. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard of it. Never Uh heard of it. Never heard of it. And this is the virtuous cycle of uh, marketing a film, which is, you know what? When you may, when you release it in theaters and you run a marketing campaign and it's in TV ads and it's and it's in billboards and stuff like that, it doesn't just drive into theaters and then the marketing stops. It also creates awareness of your product so that when it makes it to your streaming service, people know that it exists, which is important because if you don't know it exists, you will never try to find it. And so I feel like. Uh, again, exactly. it, this could go wrong for them. Of course, it could go wrong for them. But it feels like, one, they were leaving money on the table in theatrical. Mm-hmm. And two, they're going to get better visibility for their product when it goes to the streaming service, which, three, probably increases, at least potentially, the uptake of their of their service or the, reduces the churn on their service from exactly. people who are like, oh, look at that, that movie... I I get Apple TV Plus. I find value in the fact that this Oscar movie that I knew about, Causeway is its name, by the way. Uh, I totally knew about that movie. Uh, And so now I'll watch it because it got an Oscar nomination. And and like right now, they're not doing that. So I I just I think it's so smart to do this. um, If you're Apple, if you're Amazon to just, you know, take take the money in theatrical and it's still going to be a compressed theatrical release and you're still going to get it on your service and pe- more people will probably know about it because you spent money to market it. Well, and even if the- even if the marketing is like break even with what you made in theatrical, the right. benefit is now you've got a movie that's known on your service and that's got value. Right. And I think two things I wanted to touch upon, which one, which I think Jason is, is extremely right about, is this idea that 
even if Apple, this were to fail for Apple, right? Even if this were, the downside for it is so small because there's not like, they're not like they're making huge amounts of money uh, uh, on this. Well, actually, we don't know because we don't get this breakout from Apple. But we can basically assume if there's an average of 30 million subscribers kind of globally, we assume that most of those are domestic and what they're charging. They're not making a huge amount of money on this compared to what they are spending on it, uh, on Apple TV Plus as a whole. If you think about the amount of money that they're spending on acquiring a Scorsese movie, on acquiring a Ridley Scott movie, beating out Netflix, beating out Paramount, beating out Sony to have those films, bringing them to theaters, even if it doesn't do well, is still going to be better than just dropping it on Apple TV Plus and hoping that people find it. Um, the, the the other side of this equation, too, and actually just on that that I want to touch upon about Causeway, because I think this is really interesting, and this is what I was trying to get to. Um, thank you, Jason, for bringing it up about marketing. So, like, that's an A24 movie. There's a ton of A24. You know, A24 just won how A24. many Oscars for Everything Everywhere All at Once, for The mm-hmm. Whale, for all these films. There are a ton of A24 movies on Netflix that, excuse me, on Apple TV Plus that are exclusive to Apple TV Plus because A24 had to deal with Apple TV Plus. You have not heard of most of them because Apple mm-hmm. does not market them. And yeah. for some reason, A24 has not marketed them. And I suspect it's because A24 is like, we already have that deal with Apple. Those movies are going there regardless. We're going to spend our marketing budget on the theatrical releases because we need people to go to theaters to watch them. This is the issue with Apple as well. If you don't market these films and you're not on a Netflix, which we'll get to in the next segment, which has the the scale that it has, people just don't know about it and people aren't going to go. So luckily, Jason is a big movie guy and a movie industry guy and watched the Oscars and was like, what is this movie? Huh? Oh, I have Apple TV Plus. I guess yeah. I'll watch it. Um the other the other thing that I will say about the theatrical landscape, I, I have a lot of conversations with people who work at these different companies and specifically work on film. And the question always kind of comes up, you know, like, why are you in theaters? Why are you not in theaters? What's the hardest part of theatrical? You know, what are you seeing, et cetera, et cetera. And the big thing that they a lot of them say to me is the issue with theatrical, it's still down 30 percent, right, compared to 2019, which is better than it was last year, better than the year before that. Um, it's, it's still it's still down about 25 to 30 percent. And We'll see what Mario does for it. And and I think the issue is that there are certain films that feel like they do not perform well in theaters anymore. And people like, like romantic comedies is always the big one that people throw out. Comedies in general, right? Like Lionsgate is trying to fix this. They've got Joyride coming out, kind of a big raunchy comedy that they're really excited about. Um, and so so they're trying to get that more people out there. And they, their argument is that if the quality is really good, then people will go see it regardless. And if it's marketed as a comedy the way that like Dungeons and Dragons, I think, did a really great job of, it opens up, kind of widens the audience. Like Dungeons and Dragons is not just a fantasy movie. It's a comedy movie. So a lot of people were like, I'm going to go see it because it looks funny. Chris Pine seems like it's, he's really funny in it. Oh, and Pine. so they go and they watch it. Um, but there's an argument that some of these films do not do as well versus other genres like superhero, horror, being mm-hmm. are really key theatrical drivers. And so when you talk to some of these executives, they're kind of like – why would we try to be in theaters if like, especially if we're not necessarily going to do windowing or especially if we're still figuring out how to prioritize the streaming afterwards, if we're only going to be in theaters for 40 days and we don't think we're going to be able to compete against Mario, we're not going to be able to compete against Dungeons and Dragons, we're not going to be able to compete against um, Megan or whatever it might be. It just makes more sense for us actually to not go to theaters and to not have to pay exhibitors and to not have to have our performance reported in the Hollywood Reporter and we can kind of just go this route now that is the biggest debate like that 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 is the debate that rages where they're like well how do you know you know this is kind of how do you know the demand isn't there if the supply is cut off right like how do you know people aren't interested in that because you haven't actually put it in theaters i think this is actually where apple and amazon 
will be very important because everyone else will be watching because they're going to be taking, they don't have big IP. They're going to be taking movies that are dramas, that are comedies, you know, maybe thrillers that are big, big, big star, big, big director, but not really attached to any other big IP. And they're going to see how those play out. And if it's Apple has a comedy that does really well and they manage to do that two or three times, Lionsgate has a comedy that does well. All of a sudden, if you're Sony, if you're Disney, you know, your 20th century or whoever you are, Warner Brothers, you might say, we're going to put a comedy in theaters again. We're going to see if we can actually increase the level or, or meet the demand that we're seeing by increasing the supply. If it doesn't happen, you kind of get back to the square one moment where everyone's trying to figure out the best way to release something. Uh, but but I do think it's a to Jason's original point. I think this is a very important experiment in the space. Yeah. And something we'll watch. Right. And yeah, absolutely. Experiment is, I think, the right way to quantify this, too, because it's like I think it's a good thing to try, like give mm-hmm. it a try and they'll and they'll look at it and they'll see. You know, does it work for us or not? But I, I think it's interesting that they're trying. And I think that this is a general sense. Uh, I get the general sense that theatrical, which was considered, you know, after the pand- pandemic, uh, the height of the pandemic was like, oh, well, forget it. Theatrical is dead. Now everybody is looking at theatrical going, eh, actually, uh, there's there's uh, theatrical might be different, but it's not gone. And there's potential there. And, you know, experiment, right? You experiment with it and see what happens. And and I mean, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work for Apple, they have those iPhone things. They got iPads, they got watches, they've got AirPods. What else do they have? They have storage. <laughs> they've got other ways of making of making money that it's okay. And, and, and yeah, it sounds like okay. I'm joking around about it, but there is a reason that um, Jason would know better than, than most people, someone who closely follows Apple, that Apple can do certain things that others just cannot, including yeah. spending the money on a four hour Martin Scorsese movie uh, that like that, it, that were the time, the, the projected time alone, yeah. it might be a turn off to people. They, they just want the glory of working with him and, exactly. and getting award nominations. And that's exactly. part of their calculus. And uh, one, one more thing before we move on and talk about Netflix is one of these reports also said, and this just made me laugh, that Apple's been negotiating with distributors, potential distributors for its theatrical, because it just wants to sign somebody and say, you're going to put these into theaters for us, right? Like you said, maybe there's marketing, maybe it's just distribution, but whatever it is, it's like you need you need somebody to do that. Apple's not going to set up its own distribution wing, right? It, they may not buy Paramount for distribution, but they're going to they're not going to set up their own distribution wing either. They're going to make a deal. But the report suggests that and it just it delights me because it's very similar to our discussion about sports rights with Apple, which is they talk to these a- Apple tech companies are talking to entertainment companies and entertainment companies are talking to tech companies. And it's like they're not speaking the same language. The story was something about how the distributors were perplexed by Apple's negotiations with them. And that just made me laugh because, of course, they were. Of course, they were, because Apple does not. And, and this is what's great about it is like Apple doesn't come from the mindset of the entertainment industry and that can be good. Yeah. But also in other circumstances, it is that they haven't learned the lessons that have already been internalized and now they've got to learn them and somebody has to sit them down and say, no, 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 you don't understand. And I get the push and pull there where Apple's like, no, but we're going to change things and it's going to be different. It doesn't need to be like this. And you guys are set in your ways. And, and that is a, can be a valid perspective. The other perspective is, but we've been through the wars. We know all the details. That's why it's this way. 
And I can see why they're at loggerheads. And that's why there hasn't been a deal made for Apple to find a distributor yet. Because just like when they were talking to the NFL, they're Mm kind of not on the same page about even what they're talking about. And I think, too, I think you're 100% right. Um, also, I would never try to question uh, Jason Sell on anything Apple. Uh, but but I think, <laughs> well, I think you're this isn't right. A big, this isn't a big reach, right? It's like, yeah, Apple's kind of weird. If you're an entertainment industry company, you're like, who are these guys? It's like, yeah, totally. That and is I, totally I, right. And I, I also think, though, like from the Apple standpoint, from the Netflix standpoint, certainly, and I think to an extent Amazon a few years ago, although Amazon has actually invested in this space, Um there's a difference between launching a platform and get, and developing content for that platform in itself extremely difficult like in itself a very 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 difficult thing that everyone is still trying to figure out it is another skill set and by skill set i mean another tens of millions in investment in the people who know how to run a theatrical business. That includes everyone from people who work with the exhibitors to the marketing teams to the people who the finance teams that are running your P&A analysis uh, on on how much it's cost, how much it's going to cost you, talent relationships, like working with the agents. It is a completely different side of the equation that the the platform teams that you bring on who are the amazing content acquisitions teams, the data teams, the the engineering teams, for all that they do, which is really incredible, they do not know the theatrical space. And I think this is like a a, conver- a part of the conversation. You no know, labor um, uh, is is always a part of the conversation that I think we uh, as a, as an industry touch less upon than we probably should. But there is like, do we want to invest in hiring these people, giving them benefits, right? Like having them on on on, on our salary just to see that in, oh, in two years it doesn't work, and then lay those people off. Now you've got a bad PR story too, right? You've got like, okay, well Apple brings in these people, then they lay these people off, um, and so instead of doing that, it's kind of like, well, if we can partner with the guys who already have those teams and we'll just take on a, like 12, 13 additional titles, and then they can hire maybe, you know, 100 people more to, to help out the Apple side of the business because of what Apple's paying them. You kind of get to a point where it's like, oh, well, that makes sense. That That is literally like how most companies operate in, in entertainment, but also outside of entertainment. It is like you offer a service that we would like to subscribe to. And therefore, we would like to give you the money in order for you to complete this aspect of the service, which is we are going to buy the films. We would like you to distribute and market the films and you're going to take a cut of it. And I think that makes so much more sense and, and really speaks to the experiment aspect of this than than saying we're all in and investing, again, tens of millions of dollars into the labor component to run a theatrical business. Yeah, well, experiments. Again, experiments. We'll see. So so Netflix, Netflix, you wrote a, a piece in Puck called The Most Valuable Real Estate in Hollywood. You mentioned this earlier. Dragged across, across concrete, a critically acclaimed but semi-controversial Mel Gibson movie that bombed at the box office in 2018 was uh, in a recent week, number four on Netflix's English language films. And this goes to your point and you wrote it about it in puck, which is if you're Netflix, you don't necessarily need to invest as much in originals because you can make movies hits the existence of Netflix and its interface and its user base means that Netflix can take a movie that's already been around and say, we're going to make this movie. We're going to basically, I'm, you know, that scene in high fidelity where John Cusack says, I'm going to sell three copies of the, or five copies of the three EPs by the beta band. And he plays the song, dry the rain. And, and people are like, Oh, what is this? I'll, I'll, I'll buy a copy. And he's like, yeah, see, that's what Netflix is doing is like, 
somebody inside Netflix is like, just wait, I'm going to make Dragged Across Concrete a hit. <laughs> and and they can because they're Netflix, right? Which I That was what I took away from your article is like, th- you got to understand the power that they wield and that it doesn't all have to be invented at Netflix for it to be accumulating to the bottom line of Netflix. Had you heard of this movie before? Never heard of it. No. Me either. Neither. And like, again, J- I cannot express enough that Jason and I are close watchers of the industry and close watchers of film and television <laughs> itself. And I was like, this is a Mel Gibson. Maybe that's why I hadn't heard of it. It was yeah. like a Mel Gibson kind of for I I still haven't seen it from what everyone tells me they say it's pretty good but controversial seems to be this kind of sentiment that I get from mm-hmm. it um that feels very kind of americano that like that's that's what the, what people who have told me uh, preface that by saying these are people who live in new york so take that what you will yeah. uh and and but but that's kind of the 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 summary i've gotten but i think to, to jason's point like this was a movie we hadn't heard about. This was a movie that uh, Matt Bellany, my, my partner at, P- at Puck, he was like, yeah, I knew of this movie because I Matt Bellany, but like, like, it's not a good film. Like, he was like, I don't like, I don't understand. And I think why part of the reason I wanted to write about it was because, and Jason, you, you're really tuned in. I don't know if you've noticed this too. This kind of question or this article comes up every month. Every month there's someone who's like, yeah. why is this movie Trending number one on, on Netflix. And I think it speaks to two things. One. Netflix. is The answer is Netflix. It was in your question all along. It's because literally, Netflix. Yeah, like literally the answer is like Netflix has 230 million global subscribers and Netflix controls the most valuable piece of real estate in Hollywood, which is its carousel. Um, the example I really like to use is Squid Game. So if we think about how Squid Game worked, right? So before you get there, the question I get asked all the time from executives I work with is like, would Squid Game have worked on my platform? And we were an apparent we work with with kind of all the platforms um, except Netflix or with all the platforms and I always say like no but it's not because you wouldn't have ordered it it's because you don't have 230 million subscribers and and the thing about Netflix and Squid Game is the way this kind of worked right was they developed Squid Game they knew it was going to be a hit in South Korea they did marketing for it they were like we're not worried about it they were seeing a lot of activity before the show's released show's released um, then over the course of you know next four, five, six hours. And I'm making up the the countries I say because I can't, I don't have them uh, exactly in mind, but they see it really picking up in, in Japan. They see it really picking up in Singapore. They see it really picking up in, in India or whatever. And all of a sudden it's moving west. They see it really doing well. And so if what Netflix does, right, for if, you're, if you're on the, on the, first of all, their algorithms are trained to recognize this, but also if you're on their curation team, you're noticing this and you're going, I'm just going to bump it. I'm going to surface it. I'm going to show that it's trending number one or number five globally. I'm going to put it up in kind of the recommended for you area and see how this goes. All of a sudden, it starts picking up in Ireland, England, and then really it comes to the States. And all of a sudden, by the time it comes to the States, it's kind of like number one globally, number two globally. And it's in the carousel. Now they're kind of going like, we're seeing this show really take off and we're going to try to just push it up and see if we can get people to watch it. It helps that it is a Netflix original, which they like to boost. And so this kind of happens. And within the span of what, a week and a half, two weeks, it becomes this kind of global sensation. And it's a great example of two aspects of Netflix's business. Both are equally important. One, it was designed to be hyper-local and succeed hyper-locally, and it did. It did its job in South Korea. But two, it took advantage of how fast something could move across Netflix due to its scale and its accessibility and availability that people were able to kind of pick up on it while also seeing it on social. So it's trending on social. It's trending on Netflix. They don't have to search for it. It is there. And I think this is kind of what gets to... 
the conversation about these older titles, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a movie, we typically see it with movies. The reason that this is an important conversation is because these are films, again, if we're talking about that kind of pay one, pay two licensing stuff, these are films that Netflix can go like, oh, nobody really wants these, but we'll take them. Like, we'll, 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 you know what? We'll pay you this amount of money. We need extra titles. We're going to do it. I, I think in my piece, I refer to it as constantly rotating highs. And this idea that unlike an HBO Max, which has Friends, which has Warner Brothers movies, the DC films, Harry Potter stuff, right? Um, unlike Disney Plus that always has Star Wars or Marvel, Netflix doesn't really have something permanently that people go back to. So they have like Wednesday, they have Stranger Things, um, and then they have movies like this one, like Dragged Across Concrete, they have Squid Game, but they're constantly rotating, right? There's this idea of like Netflix is valuable to you as a consumer because every time you open it, there is something fresh. And then they try to license out fan favorites for as long as possible. So your Grey's Anatomy, your New Girl, so that they're like, oh, also, you know, NCIS, so we have your favorite shows. And so if you're Netflix, these films that don't wouldn't really make a splash even in theaters and aren't going to make a splash on like a Paramount Plus or a Peacock because of your size on Netflix and because you can see how things are operating, you can make that movie do well on your platform. So Dragged Across Concrete lands on Netflix. It finds its audience somewhere in the States. People are seeing, uh, people at Netflix are seeing this movie being engaged with. And so they just kind of consistently promote it, right? They're kind of moving up row by row. If you think about your Netflix interface, row by row by row, it's increasing. And then all of a sudden, if you're in the target demo that they have identified as in your taste cluster is a great overlap of like these eight taste clusters that are engaging with the movie, it's going to be in your carousel. And if you're just on the outskirts of that taste clusters, they're going to put it in kind of the recommended for you. It's going to be the first film that, that's recommended. Also, again, because you might be seeing it on social, your friends might be talking about it. Now, again, you don't have to search for it. It is just there. This is the only something that Netflix can do. And this kind of speaks to our conversation we were just having about the theatrical component. The Netflix itself is a pure scale play subscriber base. It is the ability to say we can put something out here and we have nearly a quarter of a billion people who can tell us if they're interested or not and how fast that moves. We have trained our tools and we have trained our teams to really work in tangent to elevate these titles as they come in. And because they can do this cheaply, because again, something like Dragged Across Concrete, not going to cost them much because they can take these titles and say, well, it's fine. We just need these constantly rotating highs and we'll figure out what to do with it. They can do it at a much cheaper budget. Um, The last thing I'll say on this, because I know I'm rambling, to what happens on this podcast when I get excited. Uh, The, the, Last thing I'll say is you you can see where this is really going to work for Netflix. I tweeted about this. Netflix has this advantage over the next few years. Arrested Development. Arrested Development was going to leave Netflix. And part of that was because the original deal for Arrested Development, the renewal was super high. So so Netflix says, cool, you guys take it. We'll bring in something else. It's fine. We can make that work. It does not mean that Netflix didn't want Arrested Development. It was just not valued at the level they would want. So they go back to Disney. Again, remember we were saying at the top of this podcast, Disney's in a place where general entertainment, they don't really know if it's working for them. Hulu's a weird question for them. They're still trying to figure out what type of content they need. And more importantly, they're trying to figure out what type of content they don't need. And they can charge enough to kind of say, well, that's more than we're probably going to make on our end. So they go back to Netflix. I'm assuming, I have not actually heard this conversation, but based on kind of my knowledge of the industry, Go back to Netflix and say, you know what, uh, we can give you this for another, another three years and we'll come down 10%. All of a sudden, Netflix goes, great, you know, this show actually, that's what we kind of value it at. Disney says we're going to take it at less than we thought we were going to get for it, but it's still going to do better for us having you guys pay that money than it is going to be on our own platform where maybe the audience overlap just isn't as strong. We don't think it's going to really drive the type of engagement or, or subscriber acquisition or retention that we need. All of this is a way of saying Netflix 
has a core advantage in being like, we can take older shows and it still matters to us or, and films. And we are not going to pay what we once were going to pay for them because all these other companies that are trying to offload their stuff are now need to do it at a way where they're like, they just need to have it off their platform. And they just need to make revenue, right? The t- the, think about it. The most valuable content is a type of content that they do not want to get rid of. So Disney is not going to license out the Mandalorian, but there's a sweet, sweet gray space that Netflix sits in, which is like, okay, we don't, we're not going to get Mandalorian, but we could get this. And we think we can actually do something with that, that, that matters to our subscribers and therefore is a pretty strong thing for us. And we can get it for half the price. That's kind of what you're seeing with Netflix right now. All right. It's uh, the, that was my rant. The power, no, it is the power of Netflix. The power, the power. Dragged across concrete. Don't know anything about it, but you know what? It's Netflix. That's what matters. I mean, that's when it's going good for Netflix. I mean, that's their. That's one of their greatest strengths is their Netflix. They have the power to put things in front of you. I mean, that's this is the flip side of the. Uh, why can't I just go back and watch the show that I wanted to watch mm-hmm. <laughs> that I that I'm halfway through? And Netflix is like, yeah, but we need to show you this other thing that we're going to make you watch. <laughs> we're going to make you want to watch at least. They can't make <laughs> you watch it, but they can make you want to watch it by putting it in front of your face. Um, time for Sports Corner. Sports Corner. Oh, yeah. Sports Corner. Endeavor is buying the WWE, formerly World Wrestling Federation, but it's, you know, it's it's wrestling. And they already own UFC, Ultimate Fighting. And so uh, this is a deal that would create uh, just a, it's a, it's a, uh, I don't know, they're monopolizing the ring or the octagon or other shapes where there are ropes and people fighting on the inside, I guess. Uh, what do you think about this? This is an interesting, I mean, I, I wrestling, is it a sport? But anyway, uh, but UFC is a sport for sure. And they're both similar in their appeal. So what do you think about uh, sticking them together in, in one company? I would actually love the Jason take because one, I think the Jason sports corner take is amazing. And also I talked for the last like six minutes. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah, that's true. I appreciate your monologue. (laughs) I, I don't know what to think about this. I, I, cause I'm not a, I'm not a consumer of this product of either of these products, but I know people who are, and I would say the pros are that they have a lot in common in terms of marketing, in terms of audience, I would imagine. I think they've got a lot in common. In fact, I would I would also think that there are some interesting places where they would seem to have a lot in common, and yet I wonder how much overlap there is between the audiences. That would have been one of my first questions, is, is there an opportunity here to bring UFC to WWE and WWE to UFC in terms of the audiences and create a crossover? I'd say the disadvantage is, and I'm just going to make it plain, UFC is a sport and WWE is fake. And I think that there's a disadvantage if you're trying to be a legitimate sport, which I get it is entertainment, but at least my understanding, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, if UFC is all fake, let me know. But I'm under the impression that UFC is like boxing, where theoretically nobody knows who's going to win or lose, whereas wrestling is not like that. And so that's the, I would say that's the danger here is how do you keep the, the scripted away from the unscripted 
as you will. But I think it's an interesting idea that there is enough, God help me, synergy between these two in terms of sort of what they look like, that they're combat sports, essentially, that there is some advantage to putting them together. And they probably have a lot of audience overlap. But again, I also find the, the places where their audiences don't overlap intriguing because there's probably... Uh, potential for growth there in growing uh, one, you know, each one from the other side. That's my quick uh, uneducated yeah. take on it. So my take, first of all, that was a very good take. Uh, I, I, as someone who also doesn't really watch UFC or WWE, but is like highly engaged with those teams and, and really appreciates what they're trying to do from like a pure analyst perspective i do have thoughts on this i will say one they're now going to so the company that they're creating that they're spinning off right so they're spinning off this company that's going to be from endeavor it's going to be ufc and wwe will trade under the ticker tko which is fantastic like congrats to them alone on that uh that's that's a fun moment i i think okay my take on this is that if you kind of combine the traditional media assets of this right so that's the pay-per-view that's the broadcast the streaming deal alongside the kind of uh, event space that they both the the live like literally like going to see them live and and how much more that's growing over the last years especially as people continue to come out of the pandemic and especially as these sports continue to grow um globally and then you add in these kind of fan-led pathways it's it's a way that i like to think about it um which are kind of like emerging ancillary pathways. So it's like merchandise, it's gaming, it is films um, centered on talent. Remember that Endeavor now owns all of them. Endeavor uh, has a massive talent agency. Um, You kind of get into a moment where you can kind of see the businesses, right? I don't think there's a world in which they combine. There's not a world in which it's like UFC is now appearing on WWE every single week or whatever it might be. I think where the, the strength comes from is in the power associated with uh, or the power behind all of these events now. So if you are Endeavor or now if you're whatever their new company is called, if you're, you know, TKO, whatever it is, if you're if you're this company, you have now more leeway with or, or sorry, you have more um, uh, power in your negotiations with the arenas, with Ticketmaster. Um, you have the ability to offer a stronger direct consumer initiative. You have the ability to charge more if you wanted to move less. UFC currently kind of exists to ESPN+. Plus. WWE is on Peacock. If you wanted to move around some of those deals or if you wanted to charge more, you could kind of offer both. Um, So I think that's where the power really comes from. And the way I like to think of this, right, it's like if you consider this as a matrix, right, of kind of global reaching sports, you have total mainstream uh, and total niche on one axis, total mainstream being kind of high reach, low impact, total niche being low reach, high impact. All of that means it's like, you know, uh, total mainstream is something like the NFL. A lot of people watch it, but you're not going to necessarily have the same kind of level of one-to-one diehard fans will pay whatever they're going to pay. And then you have total niche. So that's low reach, high impact. And that's kind of WWE, right? That's kind of like, you've got a lot of people who will pay a lot of, a smaller amount of people will pay a lot of money to go to events, to buy the merchandise, to buy the pay-per-view, whatever it might be. Um, that's one axis. And then you kind of have casual catching and rabid fans on the other axis. Casual catching is like big interest, low spending, rabid fans, small interest, high spending. The UFC and WWE sit in this like really nice quadrant that speaks to the um, deeply integrated base willing to spend a ton of money uh, across all these different aspects of the Endeavor business that they're interested in. So if I'm Endeavor, 
and I'm buying this and I'm spinning it off. Part of it to me is like, yeah, like there's still a live event space that's growing. UFC's revenue has like doubled since Endeavor bought in 2016. Its valuation has tripled since they bought it in 2016. Um, WWE has shows no signs of slowing down, especially as it kind of increasingly uh, goes global with what they're trying to do. I think there's a world in which the next evolution of that, which again is kind of this direct to consumer fan led, um, interactive aspect of it that exists on top of the events and on top of the traditional um, um, media deals. I think it makes it for a really strong business, especially especially if it's spun out from Endeavor. Part of the reason it's spun off is because Endeavor has a lot of leverage. Uh, and so there's a lot, of, a lot of debt at Endeavor that makes this really difficult. Um, but if it's spun out, you kind of are able to create this really strong global still niche for all things considered sports business uh, that I think can, can have a lot of impact um, on everything from direct to consumer to events and, and beyond, including the traditional media, right? So I think it's a very interesting case study, regardless of what happens to it. It doesn't mean that it's going to succeed, but I am very curious about how they incorporate the talent into other deals, including maybe doing a WWE and UFC films division, whatever it might be, right? Like, we see the success of John Wick. Like, what happens if you bring in people who don't necessarily need stunt people? Like, they are the stunt people, and they know how to do these types of films, and they kind of increase that, and they work with creatives, and then they bring those into the events, and they bring those into the media, whatever it might be. Um, I do think it's kind of a great example of leaning into obsessive fandom to kind of create the next global business or to add upon a global business. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Uh, now we're going to move on and Julia will be happy uh, to I'm gonna very quickly move over to Jason's baseball corner. It's a corner of a corner. Okay. Don't baseball ask corner. It works. It's inside the corner. There's another corner. Would you um, say it's inside baseball? I, I got a lot. I would. It is the insiderist of inside baseball. So, okay. I'm a baseball fan, but I'm also going to say um, I hear from a lot of people about this and it always happens this time of year. And so I want to explain it. In fact, people, very knowledgeable people about baseball don't understand this either. I had a uh, Will Carroll, who is the injury expert uh, and writes about baseball and has been writing some since he was at Baseball Prospectus back in the day and all that. And he posted a tweet where he said, he cited me and he was like, oh, you know, Jason pointed out that Apple TV Plus, one of the things that they changed with their baseball broadcast this time is you can get your home uh, and away uh, radio announcers if you don't like their announcers, which is a great thing. That was like one of the big complaints. And another person who has written extensively about baseball uh, basically wrote back to Will and said, uh, can you all explain to me uh, what is where on TV? Because I don't even know. And she's like an expert and she didn't even know. So I thought I and I get we got some feedback about this through our, our uh, downstream feedback dot com uh, form. So I thought I would just do a real quick recap here for people who wonder what's going on with baseball. Exclusive games. There are some games that are not on your local TV. Uh, they are exclusives. They paid a lot of money to not show them anywhere else. Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN. It's not on your local TV. It's not on the MLB t uh, TV app at all because it's an exclusive. Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN. Friday Night Baseball on Apple TV Plus. Two games. One game on Sunday night on ESPN. Two games Friday night on Apple TV. There's a there is at least one game on TBS on Tuesday nights that's going to be a TBS exclusive. There is a Peacock game on Sunday morning that is an exclusive. Your locals are not showing these games, is my understanding. Those are exclusives, and they're not on MLB TV. Separately, there are blackouts based on local markets. 
Local markets is generally a lie. Baseball teams black out huge swaths of the country as their territory, but in many of those places, there's actually no legal way to watch those games. Go to Hawaii, and you're a Giants fan, or a Dodger fan, or an Angel fan, or an Ace fan, or a Padre fan. Yeah, all five. You can't watch the games on MLB TV. Even if your condo on Maui, let's just say, does not have... Uh, or has cable but doesn't get a channel that shows one of those five teams. Yeah, they know. They don't care. They've all blacked out Hawaii. Uh, Iowa is the same way. Iowa has like six teams that are blacked out in Iowa, even though there's no team in Iowa, because these teams have basically said that's part of our territory. Now, uh, that means you can't watch it on MLB TV or on actual TV because you're blacked out either way. This is even worse than the local blackouts in local markets where you're in LA and you can't see the Dodgers. So what's going to happen? This is probably going to change one way or another in the near future. Um, It's already starting to happen in some markets. My guess is that the blackout uh, territories are not going to change, which is terrible, but that's my guess. However, once they create a streaming product so that Dodger fans who are in LA can see the Dodgers TV without subscribing to cable. Uh, the Dodger fans who are in Las Vegas will also be able to access that. Even though they're in market, they'll be able to pay and see the Dodgers on streaming. And the and the Dodger fans in Honolulu will be able to pay and see the Dodgers or the Giants or whoever is offering that when that happens. But they haven't happened yet. However, there is, um, and I'll put a link to the map, which is hilarious, of uh, black, MLB blackouts for people who want to see it. It's ridiculous. Um, but I wanted to cite this point, and this is a New York-related thing. So, Julia, feel free to jump in here. Yes Network, the Yankees TV network, has just followed the lead of, uh, we talked about Nesson, the, Bo- the Boston Red Sox network. And there are some others that are doing this for $25 a month, which is basically $150 for the whole baseball season. You can get, and there's a promo deal right now, the first year it's cheaper, but uh, you can get over the top, uh, cord cut, no cable required, access to Yes, which means all the Yankee games that are on Yes, $150 for a season. Uh, we'll see how where this goes, but it, it feels like the dam is very slowly bursting here and that we will get to a point where regardless of where you are, if you want to see your favorite team, you'll be able to. However, if you're thinking you're going to pay the $100 or whatever it is for MLB TV and get it, that's probably not what it's going to be. It's probably going to be, at least in the short term, you're going to go to the, that team's broadcast streamer like Yes and say, here's my $150 or $200 or whatever and get the games that way. In the long run, probably you'll be able to do it straight from MLB TV, although it'll still probably cost more for your in-market games than for your out-of-market games, but I think it will happen. And and the Yes Network stepping up, like Yes Network isn't just owned by the Yankees, it's owned by the cable company and it's owned by Sinclair, the uh, the broadcast company. And, uh, you know, it's a sign. Like, they're all going to do this. They're all going to do this as soon as they can. Yeah, I will say just to add to it, um, <laughs> we did uh, subscribe to him by we, I mean, Kevin, uh, he's a big Yankees <laughs> fan. And the yes account that or or the account that he was using from a friend to watch the game um, who had a cable login uh, was unavailable. There was an issue with it and the friend was unavailable and Kevin really wanted to watch opening day. So he subscribed to yes. Here's what I will. Here's what I'll say. Uh, the quality is 
god awful. It is like every two seconds, it is like dropping. Um, They'll they'll fix that though. I mean, they probably rushed it out, right? And it's probably not very good, but they'll they'll figure it it out. But it was interesting. I asked Kevin, I said, did you do monthly or did you just do the, I think, 200 a year? He's like, I just did the 200, whatever. And I said, why? Like, wouldn't you just want to cancel it? And he's like, Uh, Like, I'm going to forget. I mean, this is obviously very privileged thing to be able to say. He's like, I'm just going to forget about it. And like, I don't really care. And like, I'll probably, you know, still open up. Yes, if I'm just hanging out and it's like they've got a documentary or something. And I'm very curious to know how many people with these DTC uh, to to their teams, including the national, not the national teams, but the bigger teams, I should say, like Dodgers, a great one. Obviously, Yankees, a great example. These teams, like how many of them? If they subscribed or, or were they able to subscribe, went monthly versus annually, and then how much anticipated churn is built into that pricing, right? right? Like, which is right. like a the lot- big thing. Like they've they've priced for that. And yes, has uh, yes has the nets. And do they have a hockey team? I'm not sure, but that that's part of their what they're trying to do is get people to buy a calendar year because you're going to get all the sports that are on their air, not just the Yankees. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. I look at it and think, well, if I'm a Yankee fan, I'm not going to buy the year unless they give me a really big discount to buy the year because what I really want is uh, is six months. I want the Yankee season, April through September, and if I can get that, then that's all I need. Um, but still, I actually think $150, and that's the full price going forward, not the introductory price for this year. Um, $150 for six months of your local team, it's actually a pretty good deal. I yeah. I, I wonder, <laughs> I actually am dubious that it will remain at that price for mo- what, what will the average price be of a team's entire season uh, off of cable? Will it be $150? Will it be $200? I, I, will it be 100 I don't know. I, I, it'll be interesting to see how that goes because the yeah. economics, you know, the teams want that want that money. They want your money, but they also, you know, they need your money. So, and if the well, and if we'll these see. and if the if these don't add up the way they need it to, again, like they, this goes into the pricing analysis, and that starts to impact player salary and how much they can start pay, like charging for players because a lot of their revenue is being cut into. Then it gets really interesting because because right the portion of the revenue is coming from this uh and they price i, I think they'll, they'll probably price a little bit higher um i think they're they're kind of going a little bit low and 30 dollars is not per month is not low but a little bit lower than what i would expect if only to see how be how consumers will behave in the first year and then they'll kind of go okay well you know you can basically change your prices every year and a half to three years and, and people won't complain they will complain but they, they won't you won't see huge impact um so we'll see how this kind of goes and, and what happens next season yeah it's it's all changing really fast but we are uh you know it, it is changing which is great because it was there was about five years there where everybody's like it's got to change eventually and it didn't change so now Maybe we'll get, we're getting there. All right. Uh, that's it for this time. We'll be back next time with an episode out of time that we will have recorded in advance. Um, but uh, we also have more uh, you know, episodes coming down the road. I would love more feedback and letters from you uh, while Julia's gone and when she gets back. So visit downstreamfeedback.com uh, for that. Uh, love to your mothers. We love hearing from you. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so you can find Julia at loudmouthjulia on Twitter and parrotanalytics.com. I am at sixcolors.com and have other podcasts at FM and theincomparable.com. And that's it for this one. Julia, until next time, which will be very soon for us, but will be two weeks for them. Uh, have a good two weeks that don't actually exist, I guess. <laughs> I think that's so we should just sign off every podcast. It's yeah. just time. What is it? It's what a flat is time? Total. 
Goodbye, Goodbye everybody. Un- oh, until God, next time. <laughs>